It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, this sounds like the end of an era. Red Lobster, just last June, said the ultimate endless shrimp would become a permanent part of its menu, not just a temporary promotion. And now it's getting rid of it. Why? Because people ate too much bleeping shrimp. In fact, CNN says that for the third quarter earnings report, Red Lobster said there was an $11 million operating loss, and much of that was attributed to the loss of money on everybody gorging themselves on shrimp. I remember when I was younger, I'd love these uh, all-you-can-eat buffets, whether it was Chinese or have a different, uh, you know, in Las Vegas Vegas on the Strip, this is huge. You know, everything in the world from fabulous desserts to fried chicken to uh, sushi, you name it. But it's a little harder to do that, when you're not 25. Anyway, so Red Lobster tried to diminish the amount of shrimp being consumed because originally it was a $20 offer. Then they made it $23. Then they made it $25. And people are still eating the shrimp. Now, it may not be completely out of the all-you-eat business. There's talk of a, like a pilot program with some other kind of seafood but the people who love shrimp, ah, oh, it's a sad day. You have to pay more for your shrimp. The My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell. Three years ago, he offered five million dollars to anyone who could disprove his claim that he was able to demonstrate voter fraud in the 2020 election. You know, he's a big Donald Trump supporter. Well, be careful about this because now a judge has ruled, the Washington Post informs us, that as far as this prove Mike wrong challenge was held in South Dakota, that he's got to pay up. There's a computer expert named Robert Zeidman, voted for Trump twice, by the way, and he went and looked at the data that the MyPillow guy provided and showed that Lindell's contention that it was the Chinese who interfered in the 2020 race was wrong, that the data had nothing to do with the 2020 campaign. And so the judge is saying, pay up. I don't know. I mean, I kind of have a feeling when someone says, if you do this, we'll give you all this money that they can afford it, or they just firmly believe that it could never be disproved. So I'm, I'm sure this will be appealed, but uh, that would pay for a lot of pillows. All right, so story number one. The Biden administration considering a string of new executive actions and federal regulations to curb migration at the border. Three people familiar with the plans tell Politico. This would be a sweeping new approach to an issue that has stymied the White House since its first days in office and could potentially place the president at odds with key constituencies. So before I even read any further, I'm thinking, 
what? They're doing this now? After Biden has been in office more than three years and the absolute out-of-control situation at the border has become this giant albatross, I would say, I mean, who doesn't know about this now? I would say it's one of the top two or three issues, period. And, of course, there was this effort to get the bipartisan border bill through and in a, a political harsh trading for aid to Ukraine. The war in Ukraine this weekend will be two years old, the brutal Russian invasion. And the Ukrainians running out of ammunition while, you know, people on Capitol Hill play politics. And that fell apart. And the Biden people have said, no, 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 we can't do this unilaterally. Well, first of all, he always could have declared a national emergency, sent the National Guard, but this is what's being floated. And it's an obvious trial balloon to see how much of a political hit they would take from left-wing pro-immigration groups. But, you know, one thing Joe, one of the things Joe Biden doesn't have, he doesn't have like a flair for the dramatic where you just, you know, walk in and announce it and say, we're doing this and and we're going to stop this and we're going to finally crack down. Instead, you know, they leak it and then people shoot at it and it gets chewed over and whatever. Among the ideas under discussion, using a section of the Immigration Act to bar migrants from seeking asylum uh, at U.S. ports of entry or in between U.S. ports of entry. That was something that the Trump administration did. The Biden team also discussing tying that directive to a trigger meaning would only come into effect after a certain number of illegal crossings took place, said these sources. Well, the trigger was part of the bipartisan deal that went down after Trump opposed it. But, you know, the trigger was way too high. 5,000 illegal crossings a day or a week, whatever it was, it's too high. Why do you have to not do this until 5,000? Or maybe it was also an option for 4,000. People broke the law coming across this porous border. And this is also key. The Biden team talking about ways to make it harder for migrants to pass the initial screening for asylum seekers, raising the, this is, I guess, a term of art, credible fear standard. In other words, not just anybody can come say, you know, they're going to kill me back home and I need asylum as well as ways to quickly deport others who don't meet the toughened standard. Ah, this could come in the President's State of the Union speech, which is March 7th. But you know, in any State of the Union, you're talking about 16 different things. I think if, if, if it was done as described here, that, this would probably be the lead. But still. Okay, so... This would open up the administration to criticism that it always had the tools at its disposal to more fully address the migrant crisis, but waited to use them. Well, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, millions of people come into this country illegally. And in election year, in February or March of election year, you're going to finally announce this new policy. In a way, I don't care because I want this problem fixed. And if it takes election year politics to force their hands, so be it. No, and then we get to all the caveats. No final decisions have been made. 
said an administration official speaking about internal deliberations. You know, so this was a deliberately put out. This isn't like it leaked to Congress and then somebody told somebody. Administration wanted this out as a classic trial balloon. Um, so it also depends, particularly the asylum ban or much tougher asylum restrictions, on how this would affect other policies. For example, the Senate bill had exceptions for unaccompanied minors and people who met the requirement of the UN Convention Against Torture rules. There are other complications as well. The implementation of any action from the White House would come without the funding and resources that could make implementation easier. Implementation is such a Washington word. The administration is looking into ways to unlock additional funding. What did Donald Trump do when he wanted to build the wall, even though he only built a modest section of it? He took money out of the military budget. I mean, there's always things that you can do. And really, I think the reason this is being leaked in advance, or as a possibility, is because they know they're going to take heat from the most left-wing part of the Democratic Party. And they're trying to figure out sort of what they can get through without suffering political damage from the other side. I think there are, there are obviously a lot of Democrats that are fed up with the border also. As I've said before, the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of New York City, once migrants started being sent, and this turned out to be a smart political ploy, regardless of what you think of the ethics of it, to big cities, almost all of them run by Democrats, then you had pressure from his own party on Joe Biden. And that's why they tried to do the deal. And meanwhile, Ukraine remains a problem. All right, story number two. Let's look at the campaign. Remember, it's just, let's see now, two days until the South Carolina primary. So here's Nikki Haley talking to a bunch of voters in her home state. Some of you, perhaps a few of you in the media, came here today to see if I'm dropping out of the race. Well, I'm not. Far from it. She was smiling. And this is a piece in the New York Times saying, basically, like, why is Nikki Haley still running? She's enjoying herself. She's finally able to say what she has long thought about Donald Trump. She likes the national attention. She looked like a woman without much to lose. People close to her said that was about right. She says she doesn't want anything from Trump. She's already been UN ambassador, so she doesn't want a cabinet job. Some people used to say, Nikki told this crowd or in this speech, I was running because I really wanted to be vice president. Well, I think I've pretty well settled that question. Yeah, she'd be like the last person picked. It's hard to find a Republican lawmaker or operative who isn't privately speculating about Haley's ulterior motives. Is she hanging on to a, as a plan B candidate in case Trump dies or goes to prison? Is she positioning herself as the woman to lead a post-Trump Republican party? So if he loses, she can come back in 2028 and say, I told you so. I can't wrap my head around 2028, sorry. Well, oh, she says, if I was running for a bogus reason, I would have dropped out a long time ago. Her friends, allies, say all these doomsayers have little effect on her. It all goes back to her first race for governor when she was the longest of long shots. You know, taking on an incumbent and 
little known and little funded. And she sometimes campaigns in a t-shirt that says, underestimate me, that'll be fun. Now, the attacks on her by Trump, she is telling people has only hardened her resolve. Um, far-right activist Laura Loomer, who is allied with Trump, attacked her 22-year-old son, even questioning his parentage. I don't know about that part. And then the thing about where's her husband, where's her husband, we've talked about that. So what Haley says is, look, people are unsatisfied with their choices, Trump and Biden. And most people haven't voted in the primaries and caucuses yet. Well, Trump spokesman Stephen Chung says, telling the newspaper, Nikki Birdbrain Haley, that's just to signal you at the top that this is not going to be a nice, polite, diplomatic statement, uh, still can't name one state they think they can win. She's become the candidate of choice for Democrats and never-Trumpers still afflicted with Trump derangement syndrome. Now, what happened is after the January 6th riot, Haley, who was out of uh, the administration by that time, told Politico then he went down a path he shouldn't have and we shouldn't have followed him and we shouldn't have listened to him and we can't ever let that happen again. Two months later, she said she wouldn't run if Trump ran in 2024. Uh, people close to her say she simply didn't believe he'd run again, so it was, it was no cost to her. After he announced his candidacy, she went back on her word, saying survival of the country was bigger than just one person. Now, in the early campaign, this piece points out, that Haley went pretty easy on Trump, and he was, according to three other sources, considering her as a potential running mate. That's clearly not happening now. And you know who's also not happening? Ron DeSantis as Trump's VP. There was a call with the Florida governor that the New York Post was able to listen in on in which DeSantis said, I'm not doing that. No desire to be Trump's VP. And then he took a kind of a sharp jab at Trump, who he has nominally endorsed, saying... You know, his criteria, had he won, would be like the best person to do the job on day one. He says, I'm not sure those are necessarily going to be the criteria that Trump uses. I've heard they are looking more at identity politics. I think that's a mistake, DeSantis said on this call. I think you should just focus on who you think the best person for the job would be. Well, obviously, the foreign president is considering some women such as Elise Stefanik, um, some minorities, such as Tim Scott, or it could be somebody else entirely, or it could be Carrie Lake. But DeSantis is uh, disapproving of this. Meanwhile, speaking of uh, what kind of choice people have, the Quinnipiac poll, widely respected, just reported that 64% of those asked about this question said Joe Biden was mentally unfit for another term. 51% said in this survey, Donald Trump is not mentally fit for a second term. So majorities in both cases, but obviously a higher 
percentage for the president. Now, this poll may be something of an outlier. In fact, the Trump people are attacking it for not having the right sample because overall, it shows Biden leading Trump by four points. Even though you have almost two-thirds saying Biden's too old to serve another term. But, you know, it's always compared to what? Uh, the Economist published a poll yesterday. Biden a point behind Trump, which is, of course, a statistical tie. Um, I don't know. Maybe Biden's moved up a little bit. Maybe the recent controversies involving Trump and NATO and whatever um, have him moving down a bit. Or maybe this is just a blip. Or maybe both of these polls are wrong. You know, it's not like any polls are showing a blowout. But keep in mind, national figures... If there's one time that national figures don't mean much, it is in an actual presidential race. Because as we learned with George W. Bush in 2000, and as we learned with Donald Trump in 2016, you can lose the popular vote either by, you know, 500 hanging chads or 7 million votes, as happened in 2020, or 3 million votes, as happened in 2016, and still win the presidency. It's all about the Electoral College. It's all about those, every four years, there's a half a dozen swing states, and it's a certain number of undecided or independent, and, you know, maybe some more moderate Democratic and Republican votes that decide elections. So even though I get, you know, I have like a Pavlov's dog response, oh, look at this, Trump's up five. No, Biden's up four. You really got to look at Pennsylvania, Michigan, and other states that have swung different ways. Arizona. I could go on and on. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Story three. This is a mess, this story. I will try to clean it up for you. We talked about, I think, the last couple of shows, Alexander Smirnoff. FBI informant who's now been indicted for lying. This is the guy whose account was touted by Jim Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, allegations against Biden. So Justice Department attorneys now say that this former source has reported extensive contacts with high-level Russian intelligence operatives and could use those connections to flee justice. This has to do with filings in whether he gets out of temporary custody or not. So the special counsel in the case, David Weiss, is looking into the whole Hunter Biden matter, got this indictment. He was arrested, Smirnoff was arrested at the Las Vegas airport, coming back from a trip abroad, and the Justice Department said he had another lengthy foreign trip planned in just days. So they said he has ready access to millions of dollars, 
and that makes him an attempt to escape. You know, he might leave the country and never come back. So the magistrate in Las Vegas originally rejected DOJ's position and ordered him released with GPS monitoring. But now the magistrate has to reconsider under some procedural wrinkle. Though the Justice Department describes Smirnoff as untrustworthy, it nevertheless repeatedly relies on his own self-reported contacts with Russian officials to make the case for his pretrial detention, including declassified summaries. But here's what I don't get, and I think it's murky. In the indictment, which I have read line by line, Smirnoff is accused of making up contacts with Russian sources, attending a meeting he never attended, according to his own travel records. So, if he lied about a bunch of things, and one of them is claiming to have met or and or spoken to Russian officials, to the point where he is now under federal indictment for lying, how can the special counsel come back and say, well, we think he's going to flee the country because he has these high-level Russian intelligence sources. Well, was he lying about that? How do you have it both ways? Are we reviving the whole, you know, Russia was behind this? Are we going back to Russia, Russia, Russia? Now, make no mistake. I think this guy has every incentive to flee the country. And... That some local judge shouldn't allow this. I mean, this is just not some two-bit guy. Well, he might be a two-bit guy, but clearly he was, is, well, was, I should say, and we'll get to that, going to be the star witness for Jim Comer and the House Impeachment Committee pushing for in a House impeachment vote against President Biden. But the star witness is now, oh, I guess I would say tarnished. What do you think? Has credibility problems? Is under indictment? So, as I shared with you yesterday, Comer did an interview in which he said that, well, you know, the math may not be there. Maybe we don't bring this to an impeachment vote. doesn't matter to me. I just want to hold everybody accountable. And now that plan has kind of fallen apart. And the Republicans only have a couple of votes edge in the House anyway, so it's tight. But last night, Comer went on Sean Hannity's show. And after a lot of talk about Jim Biden, who testified behind closed doors, I spoke extensively about him yesterday, Uh, He did, according to Republicans, change his account at one point. The president's brother said he didn't remember doing this. And then his memory was, his recollection was refreshed, as the attorneys say, when shown uh, certain documents. It didn't seem like it was, you know, it blew up his credibility, but that's subject to debate, I suppose. Anyway, on Hannity, Comer said, Comer was asked about, um, the indictment of this source. And Comer was basically like, what source? I, I, you know, my joke, standard joke is like, you know, I shared an elevator with a guy once. No, Comer says, we didn't even know who it was. 
We were relying on FBI Chief Christopher Wray about these allegations. But we didn't, we couldn't really vouch. But of course, they were vouching. They, were bring, they brought this guy up all the time. So it's a little bit of spinning. At the same time, this may be torpedoing the impeachment case against Joe Biden. I don't know. But it is fair to ask this question. I mean, hadn't he asked it? And I've seen fair-minded journalists ask it. This guy was an informant for the FBI for something like 14 years. During all that time, he was repeatedly described, and, and the Republicans on that panel say this, as trustworthy, having a good track record, as an upstanding you know, man of integrity, and so forth. Well, how is it that the FBI, the Bureau, relies on him for so many years, and then when we get into this Biden-Hunter impeachment mess, the FBI comes out and says, oh, you know, this guy's an alleged criminal. We're going to indict him. He has no credibility. It took them that long? Did they, How much did they look beforehand? That's a fair question to ask. All right, number four. This has really bothered me. It bothered me when it first came out, and it bothers me again. So, President Biden announcing yesterday that he, the White House, will email 153,000 student borrowers, student loan borrowers, who have signed up and their debts, which total over $1 billion, will be forgiven. And they came up with this plan saying that anyone who signs up now who borrowed less than $12,000 can have their debt wiped clean after 10 years of payments. So there are restrictions. You, you know, you can't do it if you're a millionaire, for example. Um, in the email, Biden writes, from day one of my administration, I vow to fix student loan programs so higher education can be a ticket to the middle class, not a barrier to opportunity. So they get, you know, a political pitch from Biden along with the forgiveness of these loans. When you add on other rounds, the Biden administration has approved almost $138 billion in debt relief for just under 4 million people. And the story I'm looking at says, uh, well, you know, when Trump sent letters to taxpayers in 2020 alerting them to stimulus checks, you know, he sort of did the same thing. I mean, I guess that's the political world we live in. But here's the thing, and I've been thinking about this. The Supreme Court struck down the original Biden plan, saying he didn't have the constitutional authority to do this on his own without Congress. And so, you know, they had their legal beagles uh, come up with ways around that. So basically, it's circumventing a Supreme Court decision by doing it in smaller chunks or with different eligibility criteria. And I just think if it had been Trump who did this, but giving the money not necessarily to students, and obviously Joe Biden has a political problem with younger voters and is trying very hard to make them happy, but if Trump was giving the money, let's just say, in loan forgiveness to uh, country club owners, or I'm being a little facetious here, but some constituency 
investment bankers, you know, that leans heavily to the GOP. The media would be going bonkers. And instead, this is all being reported like, hey, isn't this great? Oh, yeah, there were questions about it, but Biden's doing this, and this is going to be, this is, you know, they're just behind it. Here's a piece in National Review. Said that the latest 153,000 borrowers will have their student loans canceled, which in practice means paid by the people who didn't take them out and spend them. So it's true. Taxpayers are picking up the tab here, including taxpayers who didn't go to college, including taxpayers who went to college and paid their own way, and including taxpayers who, or college students who went to college, borrowed the money under federal programs, and have already repaid it. They're all out of luck. So, National Review says this is rank defiance, vowing that he, Biden vowing that he would stop at nothing to find other ways. Um, in this email, there are five uses of the word my, five uses of the word I. It's signed Joe Biden. It doesn't say anything about Congress. At worst, and this is the opinion of the conservative magazine, Biden is thumbing his nose at his oath to uphold the Constitution. At best, he found a way to achieve piecemeal what he was prohibited from achieving all at once. Either way, it is a disgrace, all the more so coming from a president who promised to restore American norms. Look, whether you like this idea, you don't like this idea, you think that uh, this will help the economy, you think students deserve to have their loans forgiven, it is at least legally questionable the way in which the Biden administration is doing this. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Let me get to story five. First, there's a New York Times piece about abortion and how it leads off with a place outside Boston where they are making abortion pills available by mail to thousands of women in states where it's illegal. These pills arrive days later Texas, Missouri, and other states. And the states that are allowing this under new laws or novel laws, Massachusetts, Washington State, Colorado, Vermont, New York, and California, in an attempt to preserve access to abortion since the striking down of Roe. But, needless to say, abortion opponents not happy about this John Siego, president of Texas Right to Life, saying you have states not just picking their own strategy, but really trying to completely sabotage the governing efforts of their neighboring states. It can't stand. Well, we'll see. And finally, I have meant to get to this for a couple of days, but situation in Alabama, doctors are unsure what to do when it comes to IVF, in vitro fertilization. A technique been used for many, many years to help women who are having trouble getting pregnant achieve pregnancy by providing them with uh, sperm injections. So now Alabama, state Supreme Court in Alabama, ruling a few days ago, that frozen embryos, where women have embryos frozen just in case 
uh, you know, they don't want children now, but they might decide later and they want the option. Frozen embryos are people. And so one Birmingham mother is quoted by the Washington Post saying women who actually know what happened, they feel under attack and almost powerless. First you had the Dobbs decision, now this, what does it even mean? Now, the ruling is limited to Alabama. But the ubiquitous legal experts say it could spread to other states and what's called the personhood movement. You know, whether you define life as being at conception. Ah, White House had something to say about this, Corinne Jean-Pierre, uh, telling reporters this is exactly the type of chaos that we expected when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and paved the way for politicians to dictate some of the most personal decisions families can make. And this is not abstract. The largest hospital in Alabama now says that at least for now, it's not going to do any more IVF procedures. And, you know, if you know anybody who has a different view, who wants to become pregnant and is having trouble becoming pregnant for whatever reason, whether either partner contributes to that biological difficulty, that can be very frustrating. I have no idea where this is going to end up. No idea. But I do think we're now at sort of ground level warfare, whether it's mailing out of abortion pills to states where it's illegal, where it's outlawing IVF, whether it's declaring uh, any fetus to be a person. And look, I understand. There's very, very strong uh, passions and emotions and moral questions on both sides. But it became inevitable, I think, when the high court, remember when that decision first leaked? Spearheaded by Sam Alito, took the step of striking down the 50-year-old precedent of a constitutional right to abortion. Well, you know, like a lot of stories we cover, lawyers get involved, it's going to go on and on. That's politics. It's a messy business. Uh, Lawyers can argue just about anything. And look, some attorneys are very, very, they only take on cases they believe in. Others don't have that luxury. Everybody's entitled to representation, right? And you too are entitled to representation on this podcast because uh, I do a lot of work getting ready for it so I can provide you with the best possible podcast that I can. You know, we do it five days a week and, you know, these people I envy, they go, wow, I have a podcast, I do it once a week. Okay, well, that's easy. This stuff's hard, but I enjoy it. And for that reason, I will see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.